Good morning. It's good to be back here. It feels like my family and I haven't been here in quite some time as I've been wandering around the Hudson Valley preaching at different churches, so it's very nice to be back home today and especially from this vantage point. Today we'll be looking at the gospel text that we just read. So our sermon text today was the gospel reading, Mark 8, 22 through 25. And I'd encourage all of you to leave your Bibles open to that text if you would, as we'll be referencing the text throughout the sermon. Now this text that we just read, it's a familiar one for sure to almost all of you. But it is a very strange and a quite unique story. It might be the strangest story in the quite strange and unique Gospel of Mark. Mark, as you all know, it's the shortest of the four Gospels. It's really a tour de force. It's predominantly an action movie, the Gospel of Mark. It's the Gospel equivalent, I would say, of a Michael Bay film, with the noted exception that it's actually worth seeing, or in this case, reading. Mark is a book that moves rapidly, from scene to scene, from action to action, with little to no lengthy dialogue. It's the gospel where there is a great emphasis on deeds and actions and little emphasis on words. As we just saw recently through our study of the book of John, John's gospel is quite the opposite. With its lengthy, in-depth theological monologues and its great emphasis on words particularly the words of Jesus. Mark's gospel is the only gospel to record this particular miracle, the miracle where Jesus takes a man out of a village and then heals his blindness by spitting in the man's eyes and then later touching his eyes to restore full vision. And Mark records this miracle in a typical Markian fashion. That is, a whole bunch of content crammed into a small economy of space. So today, I'd like to look at this strange text under three headings. The first would be the strange story, the embodied Christ, and blindness. So the strange story, the embodied Christ, and blindness. So first, let's look at this strange story. I believe that it is good practice in general to read the Bible as literature. And by that I mean this and this only. Read the Bible in large chunks. You should pick up the Bible and read individual books of the Bible. It doesn't take very long. Read it like you are reading a novel. You start Mark's Gospel, read through Mark's Gospel. As opposed to maybe doing your daily devotionals and reading small snippets of different parts of the Gospel or different parts of the epistles. And if one were to do just that, if you were to pick up Mark's Gospel and start reading it from the very beginning... By the time you got to our text in Mark chapter 8, you would be well acquainted with the miraculous powers of Jesus. He has already performed in the gospel a slew of miracles in rapid succession, one after the other. Miracle, 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 miracle. This miracle, however, is unique on several accounts. Look, if you would, at the first verse of our text today, Mark eight twenty-two. It reads, and they came to Bethesda, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Notice right off the bat that the blind man isn't actively involved in seeking his own healing. 
he is brought to Jesus by others. And then those that bring the blind man to Jesus ask that Jesus heal the blind man. So he neither comes on his own volition, nor does he himself ask to be healed. Now, some scholars, many of them actually, have speculated that the failure of the man to come on his own free will, to come on his own volition, is what precipitates, what brings about this very strange two-part healing that is about to unfold. These theologians will say something along the lines of this. They say, well, it is faith that gives sight, faith in the redemptive healing powers of Jesus that makes one see, and that faith must be your own. It can't be the faith of some group of people pushing you to believe or some community hoping that you will believe. Those people pushing you might be setting the ball on the tee for you, but you still need to swing the bat. Or better yet, have faith that Christ will swing the bat for you. Now, there may be something to that exegetical insight, but I wouldn't want to push it too far, so let's leave it alone for a moment. So in the very first verse, we have seen that the blind man is brought to Jesus by others. And now if you would, look at the second verse, verse 23. It reads, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. This may seem like an innocuous throwaway line, just a tag-in line, but don't let it slip past you unexamined. This blind man is brought before the face of the incarnate second person of the Trinity. And Jesus then takes him out of the village in order to heal him. A careful reader of scripture, a careful listener, should be asking themselves right now, why? Why waste the time? Why not just heal him right then and there? This is actually really unordinary behavior for Jesus. It's one of only three times in any of the Gospels where Jesus makes a miracle a private affair. Almost every one of Jesus' miracles are grand public spectacles. So what exactly is going on here? Well, there were once again a host of different theories of what's going on here. And they range on one end from the ludicrous to the other end, to on the other end, just the downright reckless. I kid you not, these are what theologians speculate about what's going on here. Some have speculated that Jesus removed the man from the village in order to heal him because he hadn't fully gotten a grip of his deity just yet. He hadn't mastered the miraculous powers that came with being the God-man. Some have speculated that Jesus might have been in some sort of a miracle slump. Serious. So he took the man out of the village so as to not embarrass himself in front of a large crowd and potentially damage his image or ruin his mission. Others have theorized that this man's blindness must have been the result of some particularly grievous sin. And Jesus knew it would be extra hard to heal. It might take him a few cracks, a few tries. So he did it in private. I think it wise to expediently dismiss this nonsensical conjecture. So what can we say then about this strange act of Jesus? This strange action, this strange story? Well, I think we can note a few things, and I'll note at least three. And to do so, let's quickly look again at verse 23, or starting in verse 23. 
The text reads, And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So three things we can note about this healing. The first thing I think we should note is how this story absolutely reeks of authenticity. It is one of hundreds, if not thousands, of small internal testimonies to the truth and veracity of Scripture. The fact that there is a two-part, a two-phase, a multifaceted healing by Jesus is something that any, any devious scriptural editor or any nefarious redactor would have 100% cut out or eliminated. That is to say, if somebody was making this whole Jesus story up in order for us to believe it, they would have him knock the miracle out in one shot. So first, there's this little authenticating nugget to the story. Secondly, I think it's important to note that Jesus heals the blind multiple times throughout the Gospels. But each and every time that he heals the blind, he does so in a different way. In Matthew chapter 9, he asks the two men, do you believe? They say yes. Jesus touches their eyes and they're healed. In Mark chapter 10, which is about to come up in Mark's Gospel, Jesus call, or the beggar calls out to Jesus. Unlike in our text today where he has to be brought to Jesus, Jesus simply says, what do you want? And the blind man says, I want my sight. Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. No touching, no spitting. In John chapter 9, a passage that we had preached here a few months back as we were going through John's gospel, Jesus spits in the dirt, makes mud, puts the mud on the man's eyes, and then has him go wash in a pool. And then in our text today, He spits directly in the man's eyes and then later touches his eyes to restore full vision. So we notice that each healing of the blind is unique and individual as we have a Savior who touches each and every one of us personally. This is the God who knows us better than we know ourselves. This is the God that knows the number of hairs on your head. This is a God who touches each and every one of us personally and knows us personally, for he himself is a person. An impersonal God could not and cannot know us as people. So first, there's the authenticating nugget to the story. Secondly, we see the personal nature of the healing. And thirdly, I think we should note about this strange two-part healing The fact that Jesus exercises his sovereign power the way that he likes and in the manner that he likes. Jesus is not bound by the way that we think his miracle should be done. Nor is he bound to give sight to those that we think he should give sight to. Out of his own boundless free grace and in accordance with the overflowing wellspring of love that is his life, shared tri-personally, Father, Son, and Spirit, Christ gives sight to whom he will give sight and in the manner that he wishes. And the way that Christ exercises his sovereign power many times strikes us 
as crass, as crude, or as uncouth. I mean, after all, is there anything in the world more disrespectful by human standards than having somebody walk up to you and spit in your face? Yet that's the way that Jesus heals. And this shouldn't be shocking to us, for this is a God who redeems his people by being beaten, lacerated, and nailed naked to a tree. This is a God who spilled bile and blood, does not contaminate the ground, but it's that very blood that redeems and rejuvenates the cosmos. I think that most of us are very quick to judge good and evil, right and wrong, proper and improper, clean and unclean, from our own distorted, depraved, sin-saturated vantage point. But the author of Genesis is at pains to remind each and every one of us that would read that everything God made is good. It is good because it proceeds from God and could be no other way. We ought to remember that nature and everything in it in a very real way, is a good and beautiful sacrament. Nature is a sacrament. That is, it proceeds from God, and although temporarily, temporarily spoiled, temporarily corrupt, having been washed by the blood of Jesus, it can return back to God. Nature can return to God, sacramentally, as an offering with a fragrant aroma. This is what many theologians in the church have called the Exodus-Reditus scheme. Exodus-Reditus. That is, all things exit, Exodus, from God. And having been washed by the blood of Jesus, things can then, Reditus, return back to God. That's the entire history of the world in two words. Right? You can write an Amazon, wouldn't be a bestseller, but you can write a history of the world, two words, Exodus-Reditus. That's it. That's all of human history. Exit from God, return to God, washed in the blood of Christ. And this scheme, the Exodus Reditus scheme, might help us with a little problem that we have. I think most of us are in a very bad habit of demystifying the world. And by that, I mean the whole world, the physical world, which is absolutely pregnant with mystery. The mystery that all things proceed from God. And in that sense, and that sense alone, all things participate in the being of God. In and through Christ, all things hold together. And all things are made holy, even spit. And that brings us to our second point, the embodied Christ, the embodied Christ. Verse 25 of our text, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It is jaw-droppingly beautiful. And it is nothing short of stunning, unfathomably profound, really. It reads, Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. The God of the cosmos, he who was rich beyond all measure, crawls into the depth of our humanity takes on human form without sin, and he reaches out and touches us. 
There are very few things in life as profound, as humanizing, and yet as drastically lacking as a person physically reaching out and touching another person. We seal people off in boxes. If we communicate with people at all, we do so from a distance. Because after all, other people are strange, and they're dirty, and they smell. So when we talk to them, we keep our personal space. But we rarely touch people, sit with them, hug them, hold their hands, especially those that need it the most. But touching is healing. Touching is excellent. And touching is most certainly divine. I vividly remember being sick as a child, and I'm sure many of you share this similar memory. And my mom or dad would come and lay next to me. And the simple fact of them holding me while I was dealing with the cold or the flu or whatever ailment I was dealing with would almost instantly make those ailments measurably better. You would just feel better as a child no matter how sick you were if mom or dad held you. The simple touch of one that you know loves you in a deep and intimate way is nothing short of magical. When reading over this passage in preparation for this sermon, I couldn't help but think of this remarkable section of an equally remarkable book by Dennis Johnson called Jesus' Son. It's a book that I've recommended to dozens of people since it was recommended to me. I tell people you have to read this book. It's a haunting and gritty, a chilling story of extreme alcohol and drug abuse, isolation and despair. It's actually a series of short stories, one of which is called Beverly Home. And in this section, a recovering drug addict is working in a home for the infirmed, the dispossessed, and the broken. He is working with shattered, sad people. These are forgotten cast-offs. They are forsaken, abandoned people who are left to grind out the rest of their sad existence under the spell of fluorescent lights and prescription pills. The protagonist in the story, the recovering addict, is working in this home, Beverly home. And one of his jobs is to touch the people in the home because they are never touched. I'd like to read you this section. It's a very powerful section. Once again, this is Dennis Johnson's Jesus' Son. Not all of the people living at Beverly Home were old and helpless. Some were young but paralyzed. Some weren't past middle age but were already demented. Others were fine, except they couldn't be allowed on the street with their impossible deformities. They made God look like a senseless maniac. One man had a congenital bone ailment that had turned him into a seven-foot-tall monster. His name was Robert. Each day, Robert dressed himself in a fine suit or a blazer and trousers combination. His hands were 18 inches long. His head was like a 50-pound Brazil nut with a face. You and I don't know about these diseases until we get them, in which case we also will be put out of sight. This was part-time work. I was responsible for the facility's newsletter. Just a few mimeographed pages issued twice a month. Also, it was my job to touch people. The patients had nothing to do but stumble 
or wheel themselves through the wide halls in a herd. Traffic flowed in one direction only. Those were the rules. I walked against the tide, according to my instructions, greeting everyone and grasping their hands or squeezing their shoulders because they needed to be touched and they didn't get much of that. I always said hello to a gray-haired man in his early 40s, vigorous and muscular, but completely senile. He'd take me by the shirt front and say things like, there's a price to be paid for dreaming. I covered his fingers with my own. Nearby was a woman falling out of her wheelchair, hollering, Lord, Lord. Her feet pointed left and her head looked to the right, and her arms twisted around her like ribbons around a maypole. I put my hands in her hair. Meanwhile, around us ambled all these people whose eyes made me think of clouds and whose bodies made me think of pillows. And there were out of and there were others out of whom all the meat appeared to have been sucked by the strange machines they kept in the closets around here. Hygienic things. Most of these people were far enough gone that they couldn't bathe themselves. They had to be given baths by professionals using shiny hoses with sophisticated nozzles. Our God. This God of Mark chapter 8 is the God of Beverly Home. He reaches out and touches our eyes. He reaches out and grasps our hands. He puts his fingers through our hair. He embraces our condition and embraces us in that condition. As many of you certainly do, I have a grandmother who is in her own Beverly home. It's terribly sad. She's physically strong, but no longer can communicate. And it's especially sad given that she has relatives close by who, because she can't communicate and just lets out groans and guttural sounds, they don't see the value in spending much time with her. So she sits forgotten. My mother, however, after watching my children many times, after holding them, will get in her car and drive six hours to Buffalo to sit with my grandmother, to touch her, to bathe her, so that she could physically feel her love. Now that is Jesus stuff right there. Those are Jesus' hands. Now this God of ours, he didn't just reach out and touch us at this one particular moment of redemptive history some 2,000 years ago. Although in a poignant way, that's certainly true. But he reaches out to us still to this day. He reaches out in the Eucharist. Feed on me and never go hungry. Drink my blood and see aright. This God reaches out to us in his living and active word, which vigorously beckons us to come to him, to draw near, to listen, to see. He reaches out and touches us today in and through his bride, the church, which is built up in knowledge of him. Why? So as to be his body, so that we might touch and feel the broken, so that we might grasp the hands and the shoulders of all those here in Beverly Home. And we do this not as a mere sociological project of public altruism or cultural renewal, 
but as emissaries of the one who will come and heal the cosmos and bring all things back to himself. And it is the incarnation of Christ, the embodiment of Christ, the enfleshment of God that sets this all in motion. The brilliant yet controversial theologian Karl Barth says, Incarnation does not mean peaceful coordination between divine and human nature. Incarnation is not a matter for calm contemplation. It is an assault. The word from the peaceful kingdom enters the world as a battle cry, as a declaration of war. So the incarnation of God is a war against suffering. A war against those ailments plaguing everyone here in Beverly Home. Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrected reigning is a war against blindness. He comes as a light to those living in the darkness. A light by which we see God. All things come from God. And through the light of Christ, all things can return to him. Exodus, Redditus. And that brings us to our final point, blindness. We've already touched on the fact that the miracle we have today in the text, it comes in two installments. Jesus first spits in the blind man's eyes, which gives him some sort of partial vision. We see that in verse 24. Look at verse 24. And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. The more that one looks at this text, the more you start to realize that this healing of the blind man and this partial vision is less about the individual blind man and more of a way of shedding light on the condition of the disciples and by proxy, each and every one of us. It's almost a way of Jesus telling the disciples, don't lose heart. I know you don't really see yet, but you will. Remember, these are the disciples who are right directly in front of Jesus, walking with him, eating with him, drinking with him, but they couldn't see who he was. They were blind to who he was, and they were further off from understanding who Jesus was than the blind man who thought that men were trees. And that's not being hyperbolic. On a quick skimming of the action-packed gospel of Mark, Listen to what the disciples have already witnessed before we get to our text today. This is what they've seen Jesus do with their own eyes before our text. In Mark 1, Jesus casts out an evil spirit. They're amazed. They bring many sick to him. He heals them. He casts out demons and he cleanses a leper. In Mark 2, Jesus heals a paralytic. In Mark 3, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. In Mark 4, Jesus calms a storm. He controls nature. In Mark 6, he feeds 5,000 and walks on water. In Mark 7, he heals a deaf man. All of this, and the disciples still can't see Jesus. They're kind of getting it, but they're seeing men like trees. And the text that immediately follows our text It's the Mount of Transfiguration. 
where Christ is finally seen in his shining, shimmering, eschatological glory. Full vision. After that vision, you realize what you were seeing before wasn't close to the full picture. Now, the disciples, they are living proof that it is not a lack of evidence that keeps us from seeing. It takes faith to see. And a lack of faith, it is our default setting. Looking at the disciples with their proximity, their closeness to Jesus, and yet their stunning blindness drives home the point that faith is a gift. It's a gift graciously given by Christ, shedding light on the blind. By restoring vision in such a way that we couldn't possibly imagine seeing anything any other way. Now, we face the same problem as the disciples. We lack faith, and because of that, we don't see clearly. I have a good friend of mine, a Christian friend, who in the past, I've been trying to work him out of this, but in the past, he would always be looking for some sort of a sign, some miracle in his life something as silly as a dream, in order to validate his faith. If only God would do X, it would be so easy to believe. Now, this is in some regards a natural longing, but it is just as naturally foolish. The disciples saw Jesus walk on water, calm the storm, raise the dead, and they couldn't see. But we sitting here in the 21st century, we think that faith is something that can be bought or secured by seeing Jesus' face in a piece of toast or seeing a statue that cries or having some enlightening dream. It is a stunning lack of scriptural awareness. Think for a minute of our greatest Old Testament prophet. There were certainly many great individual prophets, right? Ezekiel, Isaiah... Jeremiah, Daniel. But as the great theologian T.F. Torrance noted, Israel herself is our prophet. Israel is our prophet. Israel, the collective Israel, in her covenantal relationship to God, is the prophet of God to the rest of the world. But look at Israel, the nation. The people that God personally covenanted with. The nation that was led into and out of captivity. The nation that saw Sinai rocked with lightning and thunder. The nation that fed on bread from heaven. The nation that saw the glory cloud. That nation was blind to the advent of their Messiah. Isaiah 42, 19 drives this point home. It is one of the more crushing passages in all of scripture. Isaiah 42, 19 reads, Who is blind but my servant? And deaf like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me? Blind like the servant of the Lord. Torrance, once again, in his gem of a little book, The Mediation of Christ, he notes that Israel was blinded for our sake. They were so close to what was going on, they no longer could see. They lost the forest for the trees. And when their God was physically dwelling among them, they saw him as nothing but a tree. And in a different way, 
This is our problem too. Blindness. We are so close to these stories, to the tradition, to the text, that they become numb to us. We just skim past passages like this. We domesticate them. These passages no longer jolt us the way that they ought. We seem to be very capable of assimilating the words of Jesus. We're able to eat them, digest them. They taste good. They're palatable to us. But the words of Jesus should be doing violence to your understanding. The words of Jesus should do violence to your worldview, to your norms, to your conceptions of beauty, to your conceptions of truth, to your conceptions of goodness. But they don't because we're blind. And the world's blindness is the number one, the chief cause of its hurting. People are hurting. And the underlying hurt is that we are made to see God, but we can't. We're not at home. Something is off and something is missing. The psalmist in Psalm 27.8 says these words, You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. The great 11th century saint, Saint Anselm, reflecting on that verse, prayed this prayer. So this is Anselm reflecting on Psalm 27.8. He prays, do thou help me for thy goodness sake. Lord, I sought thy face. Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Hide not thy face from me. Free me from myself toward thee. Cleanse, heal, sharpen, enlighten the eye of my mind that it may behold thee. Let my soul recover its strength and with all its understanding, let it strive toward thee, O Lord. What a beautiful prayer. Let us pray that the spirit of the embodied risen Christ would shed light on the eye of our minds that we might see God more clearly. Let us pray that our blindness would be cast off so that we could better serve as ambassadors to the weak, to the hurting, to those whose longing can only be satisfied by seeing Christ. Amen. Amen.